We all have tales we tell ourselves, of which we are the hero. But what if Jesus became the subject? How would that change the way our stories unfolded? If the savior of the world was our focus, if every tale we told had Jesus as the main character, and every plot twist was part of a cosmic narrative, a narrative that guided our lives and dictated our decisions. From nativity to humanity, his story led from king to cross, a heroic journey from a humble servant to a holy sacrifice, calling and leading, healing and revealing. And now he is our guide through every act and scene, not as a figure of the past, but present through to our future. Leading us through every peak and valley and holding our hand through every cliffhanger. All we must do is let him take the lead and reign as king in the center of our story. Well, good morning. It is good to have you here in Bellingham, those of you watching with the live stream, and those in Boca Raton at the Trinity Church of God. And Skagit, it is so good to have you with us again today, and I hope that you are nicer to me than these people have been. I've been catching flack all morning for wearing this, having this tucked in and wearing this. I don't know. Is it the worst thing in the world that a pastor would wear a coat and tuck in his shirt? All right. Someone asked me if I was interviewing for a new job. So uh, for those of you board members from Christ the King, do I look pretty good? Okay, because... Uh, I'll start crying here in a minute. Maybe I can work at Christ the King. <laughs> hey, it is good to have you with us uh, today. And I want to tell you, this week I had one of the most wonderful experiences. Some of you are aware of this. I got to go visit our most senior saint, Helen Kristen, uh, this week. Uh, later this month, actually three weeks from today, she will turn 106. Yeah. She's an amazing, amazing woman. And... Uh, I was uh, there able to be with her, spend some time talking with her, praying with her, sharing scripture. Her, one of her daughters, Carolyn, was there. One of her caregivers, uh, Diana, was there. And they were telling me about last Monday that Helen uh, had told her caregiver that, that, there were, that there were spiders all over her, like, her lap desk deal that she has. And so the caregiver came in and said, where are the spiders? Where, where have you seen those? And she just looked at her and said, April Fool's. And so, I mean, she's just like, just a delightful, delightful lady. And... Um, and, and so when we were talking, she shared a verse with me, and it's the, the verse out of Romans chapter 12, where it says, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. And we, we talked about that, we read that, and I want to tell you, Helen lives that verse. I mean, she is joyful, she has a hope for life and eternity, she's been patient in affliction because life has not always been easy, and she is faithful in prayer, and I thought, she lives that verse, I want to live that verse the way that she lives that verse. And so we spent time about a half hour together, I didn't want to tire her out. Uh, she's an amazing woman. Every Sunday, they tell me, every Sunday, she makes sure she puts on her Sunday best to go to church, and then she joins us on the live stream. So it's a, it's a great thing to be able to have her with us. She shared some other things with me that I thought, I not only want to live that out, I want our church to live out these other things that she shared with me, but I'll tell you about those at the end of the service. So uh, we are in our series, Jesus is the Subject. This is week 13 of this 15-week series as we've been making our way through the book of Mark. And I just want to tell you up front that today's uh, time, there's a lot of details I'm going to give you, and I hope that, that you'll bear with me on that, that you'll endure it, because I 
think it will help paint a deeper picture of the bottom line of where we'll land uh, at the end. So just hang with me on that. As I said, we've been looking through the book of Mark, and if you've been journeying with us, and if you were here last week, you know that um, Mark spends about 10 chapters um, recounting probably Peter's ex um, experience with Jesus, 10 chapters covering three years. But in the last six, six and a half chapters, he covers only eight days, slows things down, gives a lot of detail. And that last week, those last eight days, some very significant things happen in the life of Jesus. I mean, there's, there's Palm Sunday, there's the Passover, there's the Last Supper. He institutes communion. He washes his disciples' feet. There's the Garden of Gethsemane. He's arrested. There's the trials. There's the crucifixion and the resurrection. Big week, a lot of stuff. And not only that, but there's some things that many of us are raised in church are very familiar with that happened in that week. Some of us were raised with the story about blind Bartimaeus. He's healed in that last week. Some of us remember the story of the widow who put her little two pennies in the offering, and Jesus commends her for that and says she gave more than everybody because she gave all that she had to live on. And that happens in that last week. The woman with the alabaster jar, very expensive perfume, as she comes and breaks that open and anoints Jesus with it, that happens in that last week. And something that's uncharacteristic for the Gospel of Mark, if you, again, if you've been journeying with us in this series, I said on the front end, he doesn't spend a lot of time talking about what Jesus taught, what he said. He spends most of his time pointing out what Jesus did, the actions. However, in these last six and a half chapters, Mark tells us a little bit more of the things that Jesus taught. And he specifically points out three questions that Jesus addresses, three pressing questions. What's the greatest commandment in all of Scripture? When will the end times come? And will we be married in heaven? And he answers all of those questions. Some of you now say, I best read it. Well, you best. <laughs> and all of this happens in this final eight days. It's, it's Passover week. And it's an amazing time, this, this Passover week. Because Jesus and his disciples have been celebrating Passover their entire lives. The Jewish family, the, 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 the nation of Israel has been, been celebrating Passover for 1,500 years at this point. And so they're going up to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. Now, Passover was a feast. It was a festival. It was a party. Sometimes we think God only has this, this negative, thou shalt do nothing fun. But what you find in Scripture is that God commanded his people, thou shalt party. Thou shalt have some festivals. Thou shalt have feasts. Thou shalt have parties with a purpose. And so one of them is the Passover, this party with a purpose, because the purpose was to commemorate and to celebrate what God has done and is doing and his faithfulness. So we read in Leviticus, these are the Lord's appointed feasts, the sacred assemblies you are to proclaim at their appointed times. And the first one he lists is the Lord's Passover. Now here's where we're going to start getting into some details. There were multiple festivals, feasts, and celebrations, but three of them, there were three that were referred to as pilgrimage festivals, what the, and Passover was one of these three. What that meant was if you were Jewish and living in Judea, especially if you were a Jewish male, it was not only encouraged, but it was expected that on these three pilgrimage festivals, you would make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem. You would take the journey, and you would show up at Jerusalem, and so they did. And what happens then, as you can imagine, as people from all over the country are coming to this city, is that there's this convergence of hundreds and thousands of people on this city. Some of you are familiar with a little town called Sturgis, South Dakota. This happens at Sturgis every year, 
where literally thousands and thousands of people converge on this little town for a motorcycle rally. Maybe you're more familiar with, with Times Square on New Year's Eve. Same kind of deal. Miami Beach during spring break. Costco on a Canadian holiday weekend. <laughs> thousands and thousands of people converge on one area. And this is what's happening in Jerusalem. No doubt, this is peak season. And the obvious uh, benefit of this is that if you're a merchant, this is like a very lucrative time. These weeks that this would happen, there's a lot of people, supply and demand. And unfortunately, human nature has always been the same. Greed has always driven people. There's some price gouging that happens. There's some exploitation that happens in this, this time. But this is Passover week, and Jesus and his disciples are going up to Jerusalem to celebrate this Passover. No doubt these guys have done this three times now together in, in, in their lives their entire time. Now, the Passover, this celebration, this festival, the Passover, it, it's, a, it's multifaceted because it's a delivery, it's a prophecy, and it's a reality. And what I mean by that, the delivery is what happened in the year roughly 1445 B.C., the Israelites had been in captivity in Egypt for 400 years. God says, I'm going to deliver you and set you free and make you a nation and give you a promised land and a future. And in order to do that, there's some plagues that come so that Pharaoh will release them. The final plague is this, this death angel, this angel of destruction that will come through. And Moses, God through Moses says to the people, if you will put the blood of a lamb over your doorpost, when the destructive angel, the death angel comes, he will pass over your home and you will be spared death and then you'll be able to be liberated and that was what they were celebrating but it was also a prophecy because the things that happened there in Egypt were just a foreshadowing of what would eventually happen 1500 years later in the life of Jesus that Jesus would be the fulfillment remember when John the Baptist sees Jesus and says behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world that it would be Jesus as this sacrifice and I know if you're not raised in church we, we use language like um, are, are you washed in the blood of the Lamb which if you weren't raised with that just sounds weird it just freakishly weird but this blood of Jesus would cover over our lives and therefore we could have the destruction, the death, the judgment, the penalty for sin pass over us and we could be freed and have life and an identity. And it was a reality not just of an event that had happened in history and not just of the fulfillment of that in Jesus, but in our life now, and this is kind of looking forward, that our life now, we just like the Israelites, in our own captivity, our own bondage of sin and slavery, the, the sacrifice of the blood of Jesus not only causes us to be free from that guilt and that shame, but now we're given an identity. We're called the sons and daughters of the Most High. We've been given a future, not just a promised land in, in, in Israel someday, but this, this life in Christ, not only for eternity, but for here and now. So this is the Passover that's going on. And all of this is happening, what we're going to look at today um, in, in Mark chapter 11, if you want to follow along is happening on Palm Sunday. Now, we started this last week. If you were with us, it, what we saw last week with James and John and all that as they were going up from Jericho up to Jerusalem was in the morning of Palm Sunday. This is later in the afternoon, and it is Palm Sunday. But here's a little secret. The disciples don't know that it's Palm Sunday because there's never been a Palm Sunday before. They didn't grow up in Sunday school 
taking paste and putting it on a popsicle stick with a little green construction paper palm there and saying, Jose, they didn't know this was Palm Sunday. This is the first one. Some of you are going, popsicle sticks? Paste? Never mind. So here's where we pick up uh, Mark chapter 11, verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. Now we're going to stop for some more details. Bethany is a little town about a mile and a half, not very far, a mile and a half east of Jerusalem, across the Kidron Valley, up over the Mount of Olives. Jesus has some very dear friends that live in Bethany. Probably multiple times that they would go to Jerusalem, they would stay in Bethany with his very, very close friends, Mary, Martha, and their brother, Lazarus. There's another man that the scripture refers to as Simon the leper, and some people believe that Simon the leper um, was possibly the father of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Some believe that maybe it was Lazarus and he had been healed, and sometimes they called him Simon the leper, and sometimes they called him Lazarus. Regardless, Jesus has some close friends in Bethany. So he stops in there, and, 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 he, and he's seeing these people. And then they decide that they're going to go on to Jerusalem. It continues on. Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this, tell him the Lord needs it and will send it back here shortly. What I find interesting here is that Jesus sends two of his disciples. If you were here last week, you remember that two of his disciples came up along inside and said, Jesus, we want to be number one and two, number two in your kingdom. We want to be great. I wonder, speculation, I wonder if Jesus says to them, hey, guys, James, John, you want to be great? Got a job for you. Go fetch up a donkey. <laughs> James and John are going, like, why did you open your big mouth? It was your idea. It was mom's idea. All this going on. So maybe it's them, but they're, they're going into town. And Jesus says to them, listen, you're going to untie this donkey, and you can imagine what their thoughts are. There's donkeys everywhere. What if we get the wrong donkey? And what if there's no donkeys? They're going into town, and he says, if anyone asks you, which is a legitimate question, hey, what are you doing with my donkey? Just tell him the Lord has need of it, and he'll return it. And I thought that I might go to the Chevy dealer and just say, listen, <laughs> these keys to the Corvette, the Lord has need of it, and he will return it shortly. Thought I would try this. It's biblical. Let's see if it works still. Maybe not. So they go, and sure enough, just as Jesus predicted, there's the donkey. And they untie it, and just straight along with the script, they said, hey, 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 what are you doing with our donkey? And said, the Lord has need of it. He'll return it. And so they come back. Verse 7. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Now here's a little side detail that has nothing to do with the sermon. It's not terribly deep, but I find it interesting. In all of recorded scripture, this is the only time that we find Jesus using any mode of transportation, except when he's on water, he uses a boat, but he's also showed he doesn't really need the boat. <laughs> this is the only time we ever see him not walking. You never see him on a horse, a camel, a cart, a chariot. Why? I don't know. That really doesn't have anything to do. I just thought that was kind of interesting. So he, you know, saddles up on this little, this little donkey colt. And when he does this and he starts on this parade, what happens is that, is that this is a, a fulfillment of prophecy and, it's, and it reveals his identity. It fulfills a prophecy that had been given 500 years earlier. When God would speak through the prophets, he would have a message for the people of Israel, but often there was a secondary message. It was for here, it was for now, and for later. 
And we see this in the prophet Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, this prophecy, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This had been predicted 500 years earlier. And this whole idea, your king, this identity that Jesus is the king. Now keep in mind, they've got a different understanding. They want an earthly king. They want a political king. They want a national king. They want a king of great military power. Jesus is the king. In fact, he's the king of kings, but it's different than what they think. And he's having salvation. When they're hearing salvation, they're thinking of having salvation from the oppressor, namely Rome. That this king would overthrow Rome, that it would get them out under the thumb and the rule of, of the, you know, the Caesar and, and all this. And he comes gently. And there's a huge difference between being meek and being weak. And Jesus is meek. And meek means strength under control. Not weak at all. In fact, what we'll see in the next day, he shows how strong he can be. But at this point, there's just this meekness that his strength is under control. And he rides in on this donkey that had been predicted 500 years earlier. All right, continues on. When they brought the colt to Jesus and they threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Now let's just stop for a minute and acknowledge the fact that Hosanna is 100% a church word. You never hear anyone say Hosanna outside of church, do you? I mean, some people will say amen in, in, a, in a kind of a way of saying, I agree with you. And some people will tongue-in-cheek say hallelujah like yeehaw. But no one says hosanna. In fact, we rarely say hosanna in the church. This is a word that's almost like gone out of existence. And now some of us were raised with that little, that happy, clappy little tune. Clap your hands. All you people shouting. Some of you remember that? Hosanna, hosanna. Okay, we're not singing that. <laughs> but this word hosanna, no one uses the word. But they used it. And the word Hosanna, the word Hosanna literally means save. Save, and it can be a prayer and it can be a praise. It could be this, this crying out, God, save us. Hosanna, we're pleading with you. We, we need your deliverance. Please save us. But it could also be a proclamation of honor and praise. God, you are the one who saves us. You're the one who saved us. You're the one who is saving us. You're the one who will save us. And these people are saying Hosanna, and they're not just grabbing a word. They're actually quoting Psalm 118. And there's more to it than just a word. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now, when they say this line, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Again, they have an entirely different idea in mind than Jesus has. For three years, Jesus has been talking about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, this new kingdom. But when they talk about the kingdom, especially in relationship with David, they're thinking back to the glory years of Israel, when David was the king, when economically, militarily, spiritually, worldwide, they were, they were the power to be reckoned with. They were the nation. And that's what they're thinking, just like it was under David's rule. 
that we as a nation will overthrow Rome, we'll be the new Rome, we will be Israel again. And that's not at all what Jesus has in mind. In fact, he has a kingdom that's far greater than any earthly kingdom that they could ever imagine. And they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Here's an interesting thing. This is a very rare occurrence in that Jesus allows his followers to honor him out loud. Again, if you've been with us, you've seen how many times he'll say, shh, don't tell anybody. Hey, keep this under wraps. Don't let that out. Be quiet. Don't, don't tell people that. Even when he was on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John, he says, don't tell the other nine. Don't even let the other disciples know. But this time, he allows them to honor him and to say this. In Matthew's gospel, or Luke's, excuse me, in Luke's gospel, his, he recounts that the Pharisees come to Jesus and say, tell your disciples to stop, rebuke them. And Jesus said, if they stop, the very rocks will cry out. And this parade goes on. Again, in Matthew's gospel, it says it goes on clear into Jerusalem for a mile and a half. And in Matthew's gospel, it says when they come into Jerusalem, remember, Jerusalem is just filled with thousands and thousands of people. And now there's this entourage of people, and they're quoting Psalm 118, and there's this guy and this donkey, and there's all this people saying, who is this guy? And, and, and there's a lot of question about it. It raises a lot of attention about who this guy is, this Jesus that comes into town. And, and, so, and so he comes in. And Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything. Not because he'd never been there before. He's been there a hundred times before. It's not because like, wow, I had no idea it was so big. None of that. He just takes it all in. And he sees some things that are very troubling to him. Very disturbing. Some things that are just wrong. Some things that should not be going on. But this is where you see, you know, God, Jesus is, is very planned and orchestrated with his strength under control because it was already late. He went out to Bethany with the 12. So they take the mile and a half journey back to Bethany. And my guess is they're back with the 12 and some of their friends and Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And that night is probably a night of mixed emotions for Jesus. It's so good to be with his friends. He loves these people. And maybe they, after dinner, they sit around talking and they're laughing. Maybe they're talking about, Jesus, tell us about the kingdom some more. Hey, remember that parable you told? Tell that story again. We love that. Or maybe some of the disciples are saying, hey, Mary, you should have seen when Jesus did this. Or Martha, oh, Lazarus, you would have loved this one because Jesus did this. And, and, and all this stuff is going on. Wonderful time with friends. All the while, there's this heaviness because of what Jesus saw in the temple. Because of what he knew he would have to do. And because he knew what would happen a few days later on Thursday and Friday in his crucifixion. Now, they spend the evening there, and while I'm sure there's a lot of people, Mary and Martha are probably an incredible host, they're not running a bed and breakfast. So it says this, the next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. <laughs> Did not even feed him breakfast. We'll let it go this time. Now, I've just got to say, there's a passage here in, in follows up a little bit later, that I'm going to have to skip over, not because it's not important, and not because I don't have some thoughts on it, but for the sake of time, because something happens, and some of you are familiar with this if you've read ahead, that Jesus is hungry, and some of you say, no, 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 he's actually very hangry. Someone should have tossed him a Snickers because of what he does. 
real briefly. He's hungry. He sees a fig tree. He goes up to it. There's no figs on it. And he curses it. And it withers. And the friends of Arbor Day Society are all up in arms about this. <laughs> now, it's interesting because there's only two times in Scripture where Jesus uses his divine power to bring about any kind of destruction on creation. He rarely does that. And I would be different, you know? You don't like my jacket? <laughs> Jesus only twice uses his power that causes part of creation to be destroyed. This one where the tree is cursed and, and, it, and it withers. And then when he casts the demons out of a legion and they go into the pigs and the pigs then subsequently go in and drown themselves. Something about figs and pigs, I don't know, but that's the only time. Real quickly, just because some of you are like, it's, it's, a, it's a curious passage. This is what I believe Jesus was getting at, first and foremost. Is that it was an example, not just because he's ticked off because he's hungry. It was an example that Israel had been unfaithful and unfruitful, and they were withering. And not just Israel, but if you look at the teachings in John 15 about him being the vine and us being the branches... And if we don't bear fruit, how we're cut off. He says, if your life is unfaithful and unfruitful, it will wither. Now, I think that's kind of the essence of what he's getting at with that. And, and I don't have time to go into more detail about that. So it goes on. Uh, verse 15. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area. Again, I will ask you to bear with me because I'm going to give you more details than some of you ever wanted. But it will help us understand the most important po uh, point of this whole sermon. The temple area wasn't just like going to a church building. The temple area, um, with Herod's temple in Jesus' day, Herod liked Herod the Great. He liked to take on great building projects. And so he was building this temple for the Jewish people. And what he did was on Mount Moriah, he created by cutting into the mountain and then creating these enormous, and I mean enormous retaining walls, he created a 36-acre man-made mesa, kind of a plaza, 36 acres, big flat area. That area still exists today. In, in fact, today, the temple is not there. Today, probably the most iconic image of, of Jerusalem is there, and it's neither Jewish nor Christian. There's a picture from a year ago. It's the Dome of the Rock. This is my daughter and I. Uh, the reason I'm touching her here is because this is a Muslim area now, and it's strictly forbidden for men to touch women, even husbands and wives. So I was breaking the rules just to show my daughter I loved her so much, I would even be beheaded to touch her shoulder. Okay, sorry. So... <laughs> The Dome of the Rock, which is not a mosque, it's, a, it's an Islamic shrine, but this whole 36-acre area is the temple area. And the interesting thing about the way the temple area and the temple was designed is that there was this elevated, graduated limitation on access to the presence of God. The epicenter of the temple was the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant resided. And at the, he the heart of the Ark of the Covenant was what was referred to as the mercy seat of God, the very presence of God's dwelling. So here's a, a kind of an example of, of this. This would be a 36-acre piece. So it kind of is hard to get the perspective on this. And part of it is that there's this, this area here called um, Solomon's Porch or Solomon's Portico uh, Colonnade. 
This is where in Acts chapter 5, it says the early church would meet in Solomon's colonnade and have their gatherings that happened there. When Jesus would go to the temple and teach, it would happen there. But in this big 36-acre area, there's this place called the Gentiles' courtyard. And out in the Gentiles' courtyard, anyone and everyone could go. Males, females, Jewish, non-Jewish, Gentiles, foreigners, everyone could be a part of that. And inside of that, there's this, it's hard to see, there's this little line, and that was a, a wall, about a three-foot wall, and it was referred to as the Soreg. The Soreg wall was a very strict border that says, from this point on, no one can come in here unless they're Jewish. There's a limited access here. All you Gentiles, you foreigners, you outsiders, you're welcome out here, but you can't cross this line. Now, you say a three-foot wall, that won't keep anyone out. This was strictly enforced. In fact, the penalty, if you were non-Jewish and you went into that area, the penalty was death. And they had warning signs, and they meant it. In 1871, archaeologists unearthed what is referred to as the Soreg inscription. It says rock, and when translated, it says this. No stranger is to enter within the, the balustrade around the temple and enclosure. Whoever is caught will be himself responsible for his ensuing death. Nothing says welcome to church like this kind of inscription. <laughs> I was thinking it might be good for us, you know, just like... To have everybody's welcome here, except on the first two or three rows, where only the spiritual people sit. Of course, they're in Skagit as well, those first two or three rows right down there. And then we would have little signs, you know, welcome to Cornwall, you sit here, you'll die. <laughs> and we're serious. So they had these signs that, that if a Gentile person, a foreigner went across that line, they would die. In fact, uh, I think it's in like Acts 20, oh, I can't remember now, 25 or so. There was this idea that, that Paul had actually taken Gentiles in there, and it almost created a riot. Okay, regardless, back to the, back to the temple. So when you got in here, this was inside of this, this Soreg wall, where only Jewish people could, could go. It was called the sacred enclosure. And then you begin to see, now there's already this limited access, but you begin to see this elevation and limitation. Because if you take some steps up, you would get to the next level. So now you're at a new level, and this area right here is called the golden, or the, the beautiful gate, excuse me, the beautiful gate. Um, some of you may remember out of Acts chapter three, or songs from your childhood, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have. Anyone know that song? In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up. And they went walking and leaping and praising God. Okay, never mind. I'm bringing up all the good old songs for you. All right. That there was this crippled man who was taken to the beautiful gate every day so he could beg. His Jewish man, that's where he's healed. So you've gone up another level, and in here you get into what is referred to as the women's court. Now, men can be there, Jewish men can be there, and Jewish women can be there. And again, if you remember this story where the widow, I've already referenced this, gave her offering, it was in this because that's where the receptacles were for the... For the uh, offering these big kind of metallic trumpets where people would throw their money in. And Jesus is there with his disciples pointing out, watch this, watch this woman. And that's happening in the women's court. Then if you go up another level, now you're at another level, you get into the court of Israel. Only Jewish men. So now there's a, another limitation, limited access. Now women are not allowed. Only Jewish men were allowed into the Israel court. And then if you went up another flight of stairs, then you get into the priest's court. Now, not all Jewish men, so there's limited access. Now, it's only the priests, and there were priests that would come twice a year for one, for one week, and they were allowed in that court. And then if you went up another flight to another level, 
You got into the temple proper, and the temple proper had two chambers. The first chamber, the sanctuary, the holy place, not just any priest could go in there. The priest who it was their turn to do the priestly duties could only go in there. And so now there's even limit, more limited access. And then there's this enormous veil, this barrier, this curtain. And in the very back is that epicenter. That's the Holy of Holies. And only one man, the high priest, on one day, the Day of Atonement, could actually go into the very presence of God. So what you see here is that it's like, it's like, it's like your final four brackets. Starts out out here, everyone's included, and then each level, there's this elimination, elimination, elimination until you get finally told just one, it was the high priest. And at each level goes up another higher level, and it's limited access. In the Gentile courts, this had, especially in this season, in this week of Passover, it had become a bazaar. There was merchants, and there was buying, and there was selling, and they were exchanging currency so that they could have the right currency for the temple tax, and they were selling goats and sheep and, and birds, and, and, and then all the vendors that would come, because this would be a great place, and who knows, maybe they've got falafels and shawarmas and waffle fries and, and curly fries, and, and it is the holy city, so you know they had poffergeets. All right, and so, so there's all this activity is going on in this area. And what's interesting is, is that in the Gentile courts that has become a circus, that is the only place where the Gentile people, the foreigners, the outsiders, could come to pray and to worship God at the temple. And it's become an absolute zoo. And you see Jesus getting outraged not just because, no doubt, that there's exploitation going on, that they're price gouging and they're ripping people off. But this is people who've come to draw near to God and there's this marketplace around them that distracts them from their very purpose. Back to verse 15. Thanks for bearing with me on the details. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area, 36 acres, the temple area, the Gentile area, and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. What strikes me first on this one is how Jesus, the creator of all things, the Lord of Lord, just assumes authority. He just takes authority. Remember, he's not a Pharisee. He's not a priest. He's not a part of the Sanhedrin. He's not... He has no official title, but he comes in and says, I'm in charge here, and this is going to stop. And people listen to him. Now, what's amazing, I point out the temple area and the selling of doves, because I think this shows the heart of Christ. That temple area where the Gentiles, the foreigners, the outsiders, it's the only place they could go in the temple to worship God, and they've turned it into this marketplace and I think it breaks Jesus' heart. They're, they're trying to draw near to God. And they can't even do that with all the distractions. And I think what the heart of Jesus is, is that Jesus becomes the advocate for the outsider and the poor. That, that those Gentiles, the foreigners, the ones that were, that were not part of the chosen people, the ones that were excluded, the ones that don't get to, to have the access Jesus comes to their defense. He, he advocates for them and for the poor. 
Jesus always had a heart for the poor. God always has a heart for the poor. And the reason I say this is because it points out the, those who are selling doves. Now, they were selling sheep and goats. Why not point them out? And maybe, and this might be a stretch, but I think there's a reason. I think it shows this heart for the poor. Because the law stated very clearly that there were times when you needed to bring sacrifices, and those sacrifices might be a young goat or a young lamb. But there was always a provision made for people who couldn't afford that. There was like, you know, we don't want to become a burden on the poor people. For, for instance, if a woman gave birth, when a woman gave birth, after that she was to go to the temple to present a sacrifice of a lamb for the cleansing and purification. But Leviticus makes a provision. It says, if she cannot afford a lamb, she is to bring two doves or two young pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. That someone who was very, very poor could still be right with God. There was a provision. And Jesus, I think, is seeing they're even ripping off and exploiting the poor. The people that are scraping everything they can to, together to, to try and be right with God, and they're ripping them off. And maybe it's even more personal. Because Jesus was born into a poor family as well. In Luke chapter 2, it says this. When the time of their purification according to the law of Moses had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Mary and Joseph were so poor they couldn't even afford a lamb. And maybe he's thinking about his parents and the sacrifice and the price they had to pay and now, these people, for their own selfish, greedy gain, are taking advantage of the poor. It's just wrong. And so Jesus goes in there, and he throws over the table. He overthrows the tables of the money changers and all this stuff. And that's what he did. But I think, I think there's a deeper reality underneath just what he did on the surface. What he did was that he overthrew the tables but what he was doing and what he would do is that he would overthrow the entire system, this entire religious system with all of its hoops and all of its legalities and all of its rituals and all of these things. He would throw that over. He would say, you know what? That, that it's, that's time has, has come and gone. It's expired. I'm replacing that. That's obsolete. Think about it. He said, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. It's a new day. That's done. I'm fulfilling it. The sacrificial system, you've been killing goats and lambs and bulls for all these years. I'm the final sacrifice. I'm the Lamb of God. After me, there will never need to be another sacrifice. No more animals killed. That system is expired now. I'm fulfilling that. I'm that final sacrifice. The temple, Jesus said to his disciples, listen, there is one greater than the temple who is here, talking about himself. The priests, Jesus is the great high priest. And he said, when I come as the great high priest, you will no longer need someone to go to God for you on your behalf. I will be your mediator. You can come directly into God. This limited access, no more. This is opened up. 
And Matthew says that during that week, in those last days, those last four days, Jesus went to the temple and he taught every single day. Now you can imagine, there's been a lot of attention. He comes in on a donkey, big parade. He drives everyone out and everyone sees this. No one even thinks about selling anything in the temple anymore. And there he is every day teaching. You think he may have drew a crowd to hear him say, well, who is this man, what is he saying? In verse 17, as he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? You made it into a den of robbers. All nations. This whole sorig, three-foot wall with your warnings, the separation, this, this barrier, this dividing line, and, and the hostility that goes with it, us and them, in and out, chosen and foreigner, included, excluded, access, access denied. He says that this place is to be for everyone. And it's not just for those who make it through the different levels of elimination. I love this. Years later, Paul, who was raised in this whole system, would write these words. And when you begin to see all the details that we've looked at, maybe it has new meaning. Remember that at that time, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near. You're not out in the Gentile court anymore. You've been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has, you remember the wall, and has destroyed the barrier the dividing wall of hostility. It's no longer us and them. It's no longer limited access for you. It's no longer only a certain group that gets this. You wanna talk about all access? You wanna talk about this going into the very presence of God, only one man one day with great, great fear? In Hebrews it says this, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence. Who ever approached the Holy of Holies with confidence? So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You see, religion kept putting up these barriers, kept limiting access. Jesus continually broadens access to the presence of God. He continually says, no, 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 you're not excluded you're invited in. It's not just for these people, it's for everybody. And you wanna talk about all access, not just the high priest, not just the priest, not just the Jewish men, just the Jewish women, all access. In Hebrews it says this, therefore brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Why? Because we're Jewish? Because we're circumcised? Because we're male? Because we're priests? No. Because of what Jesus has done for each one of us. And he says, and I give you a full access pass to the very presence of God. It's a beautiful thing when you see what Jesus has done, what he did then. And, and, and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they thought if we could just get him to die, 
That will end it all. What they didn't know was that his death would enable the entrance of it all. Here's the unfortunate thing. Is that over the years, we, the church, find ourselves reverting back into being bouncers at the kingdom gate rather than greeters. We, at times, are more interested in putting up warning signs than welcome mats. We will build barriers instead of building bridges. And we sometimes will get this idea that it's us and them, that we're at a different level. And may I remind you that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. None of us deserve anything but hell. It is only by the grace and the blood of Jesus Christ that any of us can come into the kingdom. And he says, and I want everybody in the kingdom. Open access. All access pass. Now, I told you that there was something else Helen said to me that she lives and I want us to live as well. So as I'm sitting there talking with her, she said, oh, Bob, Easter is such an important time of year so that people can hear about Jesus. I said, you're absolutely right. And then she began to tell me about the people that she was praying for who don't know Jesus. And then she told me about one woman in particular and how she invited her to Cornwall, and she looked at me and said, Bob, I just want her to come to my church. And I sat there and I thought, how I long for us to be gripped with the conviction of how important Easter is so that other people could find Jesus. And to not just believe that, but to live that out by praying that they would be open, their hearts would be softened, their eyes would be open to hear the truth, and to go even beyond that and to invite them to be a part of it. Because Jesus came to get rid of the us and them and to open up the gates to everybody. So here's what I want to challenge all of us in, in these next two weeks. This thing that we do in two weeks is not just so we can see how many people we can get in here. That is not the purpose of that. It's to leverage a time when people are maybe more open to coming to church to hear the good news, the euangelion, this great news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that because of what he's done, he's thrown open the gates of the kingdom and says, you are welcome here. You get an all-access pass as well. So I'm asking, could we, could we be a little more like Helen? Could we devote ourselves over these next two weeks to praying for what God might do in this room in Skagit around on Easter Sunday? Could we be devoted to praying for friends and family and neighbors and coworkers that don't know Jesus? Would we be willing to follow Helen's example in inviting them and saying, hey, I'd love for you to come with me? Not just to try and fill up a room, but to welcome people into the kingdom of God. Shall I remind you Maybe the most famous verse in the entire Bible? That God so loved only the Christian people? Only the Jewish people? Only exclusive groups? God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. All excess pass.
through the blood of Jesus Christ to live as sons and daughters of the Most High God, be delivered and passed over from the judgment of the death that our sins deserve, and to have this life, the promised land with Jesus here and for all of eternity. That is the good news. And Skadge, I'm going to turn you over to Pastor Scott. Thanks for being with us. God bless you. Have a great week. Here in Bellingham, we're going to sing a song about this love of our great Father. And I'm going to invite you to stand as we sing this, and then I'll close this in prayer.